This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I'm Howard Ramos from Dalhousie University. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're thrilled to sit down with Richard Carpiano from the University of California, Riverside. Richard is a medical sociologist and a policy specialist with a long list of publications, including work on under-vaccination, which I'm very excited to talk about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about public health, culture, anti-vax, politics, and more. You're not going to want to miss this. So we got a, a great crew today. First off, Richard, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, I'm a big fan of uh, your Twitter feed. I mean, you're obviously a very accomplished researcher, but you also have a terrific feed if you want to follow me is at rm uh, carpiano so it's great to have you thank you and as you might have noticed gabriel will be away for the next few weeks but not to worry we have some great substitute hosts and today we have howard ramos from dalhousie university howard is a political sociologist former president of the canadian sociological association and a great guide to a special podcasting project that I have in the works and I hope to release in the fall. It's great to see you again, Howard. Oh, it's great to be part of this. Howard, what's your uh, Twitter handle again? you got a great Twitter feed too. It's uh, my name backwards. So uh, Somadar Raho or Howard Ramos backwards. <laughs> All right. And of course, the always wonderful, always insightful Leslie Hinkson. Yeah, who still doesn't have a Twitter or whatever you call that. Well, I think now you can't. you can't get one. I totally can't. <laughs> it's like, it's part of your identity now. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, if I didn't have a dishwasher in my house by now, uh, I just should just be washing dishes by hand forever. Uh, what do you want to start with? Do you want to start with the MAGA hat kid? Sure. Okay. Oh, my God. All right. So over the past several days, there's been tons of discussion surrounding this story of like an inflammatory racialized conflict that is something akin to like the blue white dress controversy or Laurel Yanny. You remember those? <laughs> yes. It's yes. like everybody looks at the same event and sees different things. Uh, one thing is for sure. It's a cast of unsympathetic characters all around. <laughs> oh, I don't know about all around, <laughs> well, right? Well, let's get to it. Let's get to it. No, not completely all around, although I'll get to it. But it definitely seems custom built for like this age of like heated social media based arguments. Okay, so let's start. Tinderbox. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me, can I set, I'll set the stage, okay? So okay. Uh, there's, uh, it took place on the Washington Mall and okay. there was a Native American group who got a license to hold a protest. And near the Native American group, there were four men from the Black Israelites. It's like a Black nationalist group. And they set up beside the Native American protest. I presume it's without a license, but like whatever. It's, my sense is like there was no conflict. And then fatefully on that day, there was a Catholic uh, school, boys school from Kentucky that came to the mall. I guess they were on a field trip and these boys were wearing make America great hats. So there's like three groups, the native American protesters, the black Israelites and this conservative mega hat wearing Catholic boys school from Kentucky. And they all find themselves in physical proximity on the Washington mall. Like that's already, you know, that's yeah. not going to do well. Right. You know what I was yeah. thinking about Leslie, 
I'll, I'll give you let me give you my interpretation of this just off the off the bat because Leslie, I feel like you might appreciate this. You know when you're on a subway car and there's two crazy people <laughs> on the subway car and they somehow start interacting. Yeah, and <laughs> then they like, decide to stand right in front of you. Yeah, yeah, and like it's two crazy people who are gonna have their last day. Well, wait, Richard, you're from Jersey, you said? Are you from? Yes. All right. So it it was like that. Two two people. Yeah, I can relate to this. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, there was it started off. There was a viral video that showed one of these mega hat teens taunting Native Americans with like faux chants and tomahawk motions, and people go insane. Like they see this like smug looking mega hat kid wearing person taunting first nations people he's like brett kavanaugh 2019 (laughs) uh you know and people start calling for the kid to be doxxed and then he is doxxed like his identity is revealed people start harassing his family trevor noah gets big glass about wanting to punch him in the face etc and and to me this is actually what's amazing and and just how quick uh, these things spread and and uh, how fast the reaction is it's it's like not only having two crazy people in the subway but two crazy people in the subway in your living room yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then so then then new video comes out showing some context and it turns out that this confrontation came in a context where i guess the kids were having a conflict with the black israelites so there was like the black Israelites were shouting epithets at the kids. And I don't know if the kids were, I assume the kids were saying something back because they're teenagers. Maybe that's my ageism, <laughs> but like they're teenagers. So, but they were, I don't know what they were doing. They were responding with like school chants. There's some kid with his shirt off, whatever it is, it's a standoff. And that's the two crazy people. And then, and then the, the, and the claim, America- uh, Joe, the claim was that the, uh, uh, the, the chant was a way to dispel the, uh, uh, the, the negative uh, uh, yelling. Well, through logic, two negatives make a positive, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they teach, I, I wonder if they teach that at like the conflict management school, right? They're like, you're in a high powered negotiation. Yeah. It's getting yeah. hot. Start changing. This is not getting to yes. <laughs> yeah. Getting to yes. Oh, that was good. Uh, in any case, and then the the like the the whole situation gets even zanier. Well, in my mind, and here's the thing, I don't know what to make of the Native American protester. So they're shouting at each other, and then the Native American protesters decide that they're gonna walk directly through the crowd of boys while beating their drums. And like they say it was to calm things down, but like I don't really see that as a very effective de-escalation strategy either, right? Like I mean, here here is my like my yeah. take on it after seeing multiple videos. Mm-hmm. Um, is number one, uh, there's also like context and experience, right? So mm-hmm. perhaps these Kentucky boys have never uh, had to walk down Fulton Street and have to deal with the Black Israelites before, mm-hmm. and so they didn't realize that like, what do you do when confronted? by black Israelites, you ignore them, right? right? Right. You ignore black Israelites and that the vast majority of the people who come into contact with black Israelites, that's what they do. They ignore them every once in a while. You might mix it up, right? But it's usually just to tell them, this is how what you're saying is wrong. I get where you're coming from, but here are the facts, right? Um, So number one, they didn't seem to understand that. Number two, 
I think that they were probably already all hopped up anyway, just by all their testosterone and their teenagerishness and um, and all of that. But number three, did they not understand that this was meant to be? This was meant to be uh, an occasion for American Indians, right? Um, and either they didn't understand that, um, and so thought it was okay to be loud and disrespectful in that space, or they didn't care. Maybe they did know. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they decided to show up because um, from the footage, you could hear them saying very derogatory things about American Indians, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, as well as doing the tomahawk chop, like intentionally to, act, to actually belittle and denigrate an entire people. Mm. Um, although, you know, although the one thing that I kind of get worried about when we look at these incidents, and, and it seems like we see more and more of them going viral, is we focus on the incident, forgetting about, as you were saying, Leslie, the context, mm-hmm. the context that creates an erasure of the colonization of uh, indigenous tribes in, in, in North America, mm-hmm. the erasure of the context of, of a country built in slavery, yep. uh, the erasure of a context where people can't uh, disagree and, and, and respect that they disagree. Uh, and, and that's the conversation we're not having and which I think makes this moment really kind of uh, scary. It's, it's, it's incredibly scary to me. And then, and then on the other thing, the bigger thing is I've been thinking a lot more uh, about the weaponization of young people um, Mm -hmm. in this country. I mean, it's so funny. Like we talk about, you know, child soldiers, like, you know, across the continent of Africa, right. Mm -hmm. And, and in the Middle East, and we talk about, you know, young people being, being indoctrinated into gangs in, you know, in Central America. uh, And, you know, and we don't think about the ways in which we pull young people into our ideological wars um, Mm -hmm. in ways that I think are very unfair to them and to their development um, as as adults one day. And I kind of felt like, I felt like that was part of what was going on there. I mean, from what I understand, the, the, the teenagers didn't start uh, the agitating until they went to their adult chaperones to ask them if they could do it. And they were like, oh yeah, sure. Right. Oh, really? So the chaperones did, okay, Leslie, I want to push back first. When one is confronted with any type of hate speech, like, is it really incumbent on the the young people? Like, if a hate group starts harassing teenagers, are we putting the onus on the teenagers to take the high road? Like, ultimately, they didn't dox the black Israelites, and we're kind of treating them like nuts, but they're like, those are adult adult people who are part yeah, of they like, are. And they're part of a group that, like, the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies as a hate group. Yeah. And yet, like, we dox the kid. No, so here's the thing. Like I like just like I like I said in the beginning, they mm. clearly don't understand who these people are, right? right. Because yeah. growing up in Brooklyn, you're just like, oh, there go the black Israelites. I hope they don't right. notice me. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, like, they are seen as extreme, right? And as hateful. Right, not just by non-black people, but by black people too. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I feel like but, in New York they're more considered street corner nut jobs. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, right? Every once in a while, you know, some like 
they will say something that you're like, okay, I, I get it. I get why you're angry, right? Mm -hmm. I get why you're trying to give us the advice that you're giving us, mm -hmm. but it's so inflected by hate and, um, and, and non-facts mm -hmm. that I can't, I can't even listen to you, right. right? Your whole positive message is totally lost, right? With all of this hate. Um, and negativity. Um, so that being said, I, like I'm not saying I'm not saying that the onus should have been on the kids. Like I'm going back to their adult chaperones, right? right? Um, who were like, "Look, this is a school trip. This might turn violent, right? Um, but I'm going to encourage you, right, to you know, to push back anyway. I mean, just think about the liabilities involved here, yeah. right?" And you know, Leslie, uh, I know this is sort of speaking as a as a, as an alum of an all guys Catholic high school. Like I I, I couldn't imagine it, if I was on a class trip for this that that the, the chaperones wouldn't have immediately have like put a put a stop to things. Mm -hmm. And so it, I, I, the the whole absence of, of of sort of adult or at least the adult consent, which I was unaware of until you, you had brought up, just just seems uh, you know rather, rather shocking in that in that sense too. That it, but yet the focus in, in essence we. We we have looked upon the kids and not and not sort of on the on on the role models and the chaperones that they're supposed to be that was that were supposed to be with them. I think another thing that's really interesting about this is um, it's so interesting that a lot of people are bringing up they're like, well, they're kids, they're just kids, like mm -hmm. they are kids who were up against right these grown men. And I was like, well, that's my belief. Guy. I, like, that's how I see it. No, no. Yeah. So there are four of them. And then I don't know how many of these kids that's number one. But then the second thing is, I mean, and I think a lot of people rightly point this out, right? If, you know, if there are a group of like four white supremacists, right, who were saying things, and there was a group and there's a group of, um, we'll say it's an all Catholic boys school as well, but they all happen to be like Latino and African American. Right. And they were in the numbers that they were. Um, would we get uh, right? Would we be hearing people right. say, Oh, they're just kids. I mean, you know, like study after study has shown that, you know, like Americans actually tend to like, kind of like, like not take into account, right. The age of, of black kids in particular, yeah. right? They identify them. Yeah, they totally do. And I'm just like, oh, I mean, I'm not saying again, two wrongs to make a right, except in those kind of yeah. logic diagrams that you did in high school. But, right. um, but what I'm saying is like, huh, isn't this illuminating? Well, I also sometimes wonder about these situations in terms of the, the viral effect that we have with social media and the lack of filters and, you know, what good comes out of spreading this out so widely? I have no uh, idea. We're having this conversation, which might be a good thing, but are we focusing on the broader problems that create the situations over, you know, feeling good about ourselves that we're calling out specific people? Mm -hmm. And, and, and you know, in this sense, I worry that we're, we're sometimes focusing too much on the kids or too much on the incident and not thinking about the bigger historical trends that are at play. Yeah. What Howard was saying, I mean, you know, in, in essence, it, 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 it's it's spectacle of what gets focused on. Yeah. And, and not these larger issues. I mean, it, there is sort of a, it fits a certain sort of, uh, you know, sort of base uh, emotional uh, um, public craving mm -hmm. for, you know, for, for, for that type of for, for spectacle without with, without that sort of broader context and the, and the, and the broader sort of dialogue that, 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 that can come out of it. Howard, what's your take on what what's the broader problem you're seeing there? 
Well, I mean, there's so many broader problems that intersect with any one of these incidents. Uh, the one problem is that there's groups of people who are completely talking past each other, misreading situations, not respecting one another, uh, which is, you know, just cr creating terrible behavior on all fronts. Uh, mm -hmm. The other problem is that, you know, instead of actually taking a step back and thinking, should we be, look, you know, relishing in a spectacle and, and ostracizing people, Let's take a look at the actions and think about how can we mitigate these actions, because I can't imagine any society that thinks this is a good thing for the society to be going through, where there's so much division and so much tension. It's, it's almost like everybody just needs a timeout. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, Howard, like, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, so Richard, you're a medical sociologist, right? And mm -hmm. one of the things that, like, uh, one of the things that I'm seeing more and more in publications is the use of the implicit association test, right, um, mm -hmm. on providers to be like, oh, my goodness, is this what is leading to disparate care? And, you know, and that's I find it interesting, but I think the much broader problem isn't whether or not uh, practitioners have implicit biases and more like like the bigger problem of what medical knowledge tells them they what it it tells them how it tells them they should be treating their patients right so right. if so if for example uh patients are being treated differently because of their race or because of their gender right uh are we really going to say it's because there are a few bad apples or because implicit bias is just like deeply embedded in us as individuals or should we be interrogating the knowledge base from which these practitioners are providing care to people and i think like that i think is one of is like an example outside of this you know where, that exemplifies what howard is saying is like st why do we keep focusing on individuals and not thinking about kind of like the broader context and why it is individuals then interact in this way in these spaces yeah right exactly and and this is uh, uh... It becoming a, it sort of even a, a much sort of bigger and renewed area within within medical sociology too of, of what, you know, what are the foundations and uh, within training of where you know where people learn to doctor essentially and socialized into medicine uh, as as trainees as as, as students as interns uh, and, and and how that medical base or, or lack thereof you know creates that creates these sorts of issues. Uh, you know, though, Leslie and Howard, what about the particulars? Because, you know, there is, I read an article in Vox in which they had a university professor make the argument that that boy didn't understand the effects that his stare has on people of color and the pain and anger that his smirking would cause. Ergo, he is dismissive and condescending and attempting to domineer minorities. And like that was published on a national media outlet. Like somebody went from generalities, imputed a world of motive onto this kid and very unflattering motive. And that's going to like follow him around. Yeah, well, I, like, I mean, I, I, you're right, Joe. You're right, Joe, right? And while, I mean, I have my opinion, I wouldn't publish it anywhere but Facebook. <laughs> but my right, Facebook right. publication <laughs> set basically responded to to this teen's uh, remark that he was just smiling and like the smile was meant to diffuse the situation and then also he was uh -huh. nervous. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. if that's your smile, good luck getting a date. Good luck getting married, <laughs> right? Because that does not look like a smile to me, <laughs> right? 
It, well, it is certainly, you know, the kid was uh, in that moment not uh, looking like he w- had any goodwill. What, what I worry, though, too, though, is that, you know, instead of judging people, why don't we just judge the actions? You know, yeah. good people do mm-hmm. terrible things and terrible people do sometimes good things. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and this is what we lose when we, we blow these things up so quickly. I mean, we all saw the That's movie right. Crash, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> good movie. <laughs> I just wanted to, if I could if I could add something really quickly something Leslie said that's, that stuck out with me too is the the context of why those kids were there um, you were talking about sort of the weaponizing of, of kids and this is I'm to be clear as a as sort of a starting point I'm not sort of equivocating things but I think it does raise some interesting as you brought it up about thinking about how we socialize kids into sort of activism and different sorts of causes and worldviews about things um, you know they were there for a for for a for a, a, a pro if I, it was a pro life uh, anti abortion uh, uh, protest yes, or, yes. Or, right yeah and, which is interesting in the sense of that we you know that's looked upon in a in a in a derogatory way in certain in, in certain circles or in, in a negative light mm-hmm. and yet at the same time you, when you think about uh, certain uh, certain certain subgroups of where you know, uh, children get encouraged to be part of protests. For other, you know, it could be more popular sorts of causes. So taking out sort of the the the, the meaning here of of, of the actual uh, of, of, of the protest itself, sort of it, this is sort of an interesting sort of sort of flip to that. Yeah, um, I which, talk, which your I, comment earlier made made me made me sort of reflect on. You know, it would be great. You know, it would, if, imagine if this was sort of a a, a pro environment uh, <laughs> sort of protest of which they were there for, or uh, or the women's rights march or something. I like I to- I totally like I totally agree with you, and I totally forgot about that connection. And so there are a few interesting things that come up to me, like when like in being reminded what they were there for. I kind of feel like there's a difference between like you know bringing a bunch of, of teens who are Catholic. I mean, they're from a Catholic school. And so doctrine, as it is, um, basically requires them to be pro-life or anti-abortion. I, I, it's more anti-abortion than it is pro-life. Uh, as a lapsed Catholic, I can say that for certain. Yeah. Um, so that's number one. What's also interesting is that it's an all-boys school, right? And so it's very interesting that you have these, you know, these these growing young men, right, being so sure that they can dictate the right of a woman to do with her body what she can within the limits of the law. Um, and number three, I think there's also a huge distinction to be made between um, b- between bringing kids on um, an anti-abortion or pro-life um, march, right? I mean, because there are teenagers who have formed these opinions on their own, Right. And another thing with, you know, West, where is it? Westboro Baptist Church. Um, they are constantly at the gates of my university. And th- well, I remember once there was a, a kid, a little boy who must have been like nine handing out flyers with, you know, with those graphics of like um, a baby's body chopped up in pieces. And, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. to myself, isn't that child abuse? Um to subject the child to that. So I think there's like, there's weaponization and then there's allowing of space for, you know, for teens to express themselves however they express themselves, right? Um, 
I don't know that them being on on that march was a way of weaponizing them, but I do feel that what was going on when the when the chaperones gave them the okay to do what it is they did, that I thought was an example of weaponization of youth. And Leslie, it was within a week of uh, the uh, Gillette. Was it? Is it Gillette? Oh, yes. and, uh, how to be a man? Uh... <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yes. But I don't like that. I don't like the idea of having a 16 year old boy act as a stand in for, you know, concerns about all of America's race problems or gender problems. Just like I don't like uh, people picking on uh, black teenagers as like, you know, uh, an object to to pour scorn. I think like when I look at the kid, his master status is a kid like that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess I guess and I guess that's what do you see when you look at the kid? Do you see a kid? Do you see a white person? Do you see a, a conservative? Like, did you see the MAGA hat? Trevor Noah said the MAGA hat was the act of aggression. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I will say, um, regardless of whether he was a kid, if he was bigger than me and mm-hmm. stronger than me and he was in mm-hmm. my face, I might be afraid of him, right? Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting, as I say, because, you know, I, I kind of feel like uh, inner city kids and like kids in rural schools, particularly those who are of color, right, who are big and male in particular, mm-hmm. right, um, I think are disproportionately punished because people are afraid of them, because they are male, because they are strong, no right? And also because, no because of their race. And so yeah. what I'm saying is, I, I, I totally agree with you. He should not be a stand-in for anything, right? <laughs> Over, and I think that the only people, or really the only person, like I think who could really comment on what, what this young man's presence felt like um, at that moment is um, is that American Indian elder who was right there, right uh, in his proximity. So the MAGA hat uh, now is this uh, immediate symbol of. Uh, right, I think in the one article that we had here that it were, it was associated immediately as a as a, 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 a someone equivocated with us with a, a clan mask or something like that. Mm-hmm. Sort of mm-hmm. yeah. it, it, that you know, it's it's amazing to think how that the discourse around the MAGA hat has uh, um, uh, intensified. Um, yeah, you know, it used to be just something that was you know okay, a statement to then something that was looked upon as being sort of maybe silly or, or something of derision to now something that's sort of this explicit you know viewed as an explicit marker of uh, of, of of racial hatred. And this is where, you know, the, we're, we're seeing a lack of leadership from the president and a lack of leadership from the Republicans and a lack of openness to, to build the bridges to realize that this is not going to end well. Uh, if you look at American history, you look at world history, when you end up having these things as simple as a hat symbolizing hatred and people reading into that, uh, you know, the end result's never going to be a good thing. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I, I get it. I mean you know, symbols are just symbols and they can't hurt you. But sometimes a symbol can be a threat, right? Um, I don't, I I don't equate a MAGA hat with a noose, for example, if, you know, Mm -hmm. if someone was coming at me wearing a MAGA hat versus wearing a noose, right, I'd be much more threatened by the latter, right? Um, 
but you know, here's the opportunity for leaders to to step in and say, no, the MAGA hat does not symbolize this. The MAGA hat should not be used in this way, uh, and 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 change the discourse. And when those opportunities happen, the president and Republicans uh, haven't stepped into those opportunities to tone things down. Uh, and instead, they like to play it both ways and kind of have that ambiguity to to to, to rally a base that, that's creating a very unstable situation. Yeah, well, to rally a base around these ideas while also like being able to claim possible, you know, plausible deniability. Oh, that's not what we meant. Right. We just left it ambiguous enough so that people could read into what make America great again actually really means. Right. So this past weekend, I went to the Women's March um, in Washington, D.C., and um, and it was interesting, right? Mm. So I decided to go to the march this year, number one, because I was like, we clearly have not achieved equality yet. So mm. I think I'm going <laughs> to go there. Um, number two, um, I was disturbed by um, by all of the news stories about the divisions um, with the mm. and and like and then the the splintering off and like the different organizations um, that were now taking this on uh, with one being seen as, you know, as the organization for women of color and the other one being seen as the organization that's against anti-Semitism as though the two cannot coexist. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to put on my marching boots and I'm going to show up. Um, pretty much just simply as an act of solidarity. And, um, and in some ways it was, it, it felt like a space of solidarity, but in, uh, but there were also some troubling things, right. Mm-hmm. But, or, or rather things that troubled me. Right. So mm-hmm. the first was um, still the preponderance of anti-Trump signage um, mm-hmm. at the March. And here's the thing. I, I, I thought that it was established that, just about everybody marching in those marches was anti-Trump. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so, so can't we move beyond that, right? Because if this is a women's march and this is a march about uh, gender inequality, gender violence, whatever, right? I mean, it's not like Donald Trump got elected and then all of a sudden these things started to exist, right? right. So, so he just seems like a perfect straw man. And so that signage bothered me um, because it was so negative. And I was like, let's see a little bit more positive, positive stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And then second, uh, and I didn't know how to, like, I was ambivalent about this. So Mm -hmm. number one, there's a huge diversity at the march, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of the types of women's groups, the types of women, like the types of issues, right? And mm-hmm. in some ways that was amazing to see, right? But then in other ways, at one point in time, I was confused. I was like, what, like, what are we doing here again? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah. why are we here again? Um, when are we gonna organize around a platform? Or is that not what the march is for? Maybe the mm-hmm. march is really just meant to be this moment where we can feel safe in a mass together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, so, uh, I mean, People were having a, a really good time. People mm. were really jazzed up once we walked past the Trump Hotel, mm. um, uh, and you know, we like people got into it with um, with like the 
the pro-life protesters at the edge. Um, for the most part, people seem to be very happy to be there, even on such a cold day. And um, in truth, I left right after the march. I decided not to stay for the rally because number one, I'm a woman and a sociologist, and I, I think I kind of know what the issues are. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, and um, like the whole thing about the leaders of the march, like mm. I don't even see them as leaders. I see them as as the people who take care of the logistics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, get the you know get you know get the permit. Tell me where to show up, and I'll show up. But I don't see you as a figurehead, right? You were not Martin Luther King, right? Uh, You were just the you were the people who make the march possible. And I don't feel as though we've we have someone who's emerged like that for women in the march at this point in time. Well, do you think that the leadership should step aside then if they're causing division and they're not integral to the? The movement should they find different people to file the permits and uh... um my i so my whole thing is i'm i'm agnostic about it right and mm-hmm. and this is why the reason why i'm agnostic about it is because the people who invited uh what's her name tamika mallory mm-hmm. to be part of the women's march from the beginning knew mm-hmm. about her ties to the to the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan then. And back then, they saw it as a good thing, right? And then something happened, right, to then make them see it as a bad thing. So that's is that, why you, I, is that is that for sure? Like, did you, where'd you hear about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, I, so I heard about, so number one, if I knew that t- that Tamika Mallory like had ties to Louis Farrakhan before they even invited her, I don't understand how the women who decided to invite her didn't know that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I and and I and from and I understand why they're like, oh, the Million Man March. If that's going to be a model, right? I mean, that was led by Louis Farrakhan, right? Um, if you want someone who has a totally different perspective than I do, then okay, right? And from what we know, she doesn't seem to be anti-Semitic. She just happens to have links to this guy. So, I mean, so so that's that, right? Mm-hmm. And so if that is the case, my whole thing's like, why was it okay for her to be part of the leadership then, but then it's not okay to be part of the leadership now? Um and, you know, and also number two, I also don't understand why she would still want to want to lead something that isn't really about something yet. I feel like she, you know, I mean, she could go do something else. So I think it's up to them to make that decision. As I said, I was like, I wasn't there for the leadership, regardless of who they were. I mm-hmm. wasn't there to hear anything they had to say. I was there to actually be in a space to be with people who I who I assumed were all in for the cause of gender equality like uh, I, I was supporting the uh, the splinter groups only because like my reaction to Farrakhan is very negative right oh, I get you yeah. well I mean he's you know he he targets my ethnic group with hate speech so it's oh like, yeah so I, I remember we had this discussion like I would expect people to react to a if if a if a, an organization was led by someone who worked with David Duke or you know I would expect 
people to react in a particular way. And I would expect that similar reaction for those who work with Farrakhan. What do you think about like the idea that just because a leader associates with Farrakhan, um, you know, it, the, the, the marches is ripe for, uh, for boycott, like, should we boycott things that are associated with white nationalist leaders as well? Or is it something where just because someone is tied up with a, a white nationalist or an anti-Semite, we shouldn't uh, blame people for the company they keep? Well, I don't know. Like, as everyone who has been talking about it has said, including one of the women who um, who supposedly said that or supposedly charged Mallory with anti-Semitism, she herself said, look, that relationship is totally complicated, right? Mm -hmm. And part of the relationship is that, you know, her husband got murdered and and Farrakhan, like, came and took care of her and her family. And he basically acted as a mentor, right? And helped to make sure that she didn't break apart and her family didn't break apart, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I made that comparison last time when I was like, oh, so what are you going to do? Not invite Uncle Bob to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Um, you know, the, with the difference being that maybe Uncle Bob doesn't have a platform where he speaks to thousands and thousands of people, but he still holds like very nasty, very ugly beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Should 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 I, if I were your friend, for example, and I knew that you still invited your Uncle Bob to Thanksgiving dinner, should I tell you, well, you either have to disassociate yourself from your Uncle Bob or we can't be friends anymore? Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't what know. What if I invited David Duke to dinner? Well, are you are are you? So is David Duke your uncle? <laughs> David Duke? <laughs> no, David Duke and Farrakhan. I see as analogs. Well, well you know, there, there's right? a real life uh, there's a real life example counterexample to this too. If you think about it, you know, I, and I think having sort of the public having the public platform is is, is you know is is sort of the key variable here too. Is I mean, when you think about Obama and uh, was it Jeremiah Wright? His denounced him. So there's sort of so there's a two cases, I guess, to juxtapose against each other here. Right. I, and I, I don't know where, where I, you know, I have a particular opinion one way or another on this, but but at least in terms of a of, of, of two cases. Well, so so I am happy that you brought up that comparison. Right. Because I actually. Because I know that they, on the surface they seem the same, but I really don't think they are. Like, I think of the Reverend Wright as being all, like, he's squarely, like, in the tradition of Black liberation theology. And I actually think that a lot of the the footage and the tapes that they have of him, like, those were totally taken out of context, right? Yeah. And, right? And so... Those were taken out of context, but then Obama was like, hmm, which is going to be easier to like try and explain yeah. to the American people that yeah. these were taken out of context and this is actually what he means or just throw yeah. them under the bus. I'm going to throw them under the bus, well, right? Actually, though, I, I think that's the, that's the more fu fundamental point I, I was trying to get at is, is really sort of here of, of the context of it. And I, I guess this got back to our, our earlier discussion too in, in, in talking about the the, the events, the MAGA, the, the yeah. MAGA thing. Uh, but in in the sense here about it's perhaps it, it, you know it, it it really is all about uh, about public uh, public interpretation of, of of an issue just as much as uh, sort of the, the the substance behind behind the individual, right? Um, in, in 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 the case of, of Obama, there, right, as you said, just something here taken out of context, but yet the public 
the public conceptions have have consequences in, in essence it's the same thing that that occurred here in, in terms of, of being identified with uh, with Farrakhan yeah and and also too I mean and then going back to Joe's point though right so again like in thinking about leadership like you know I mean like people are a little screwy right I mean like a person could think that what it is they're doing is for a bigger cause mm-hmm. when they're really doing it for their own kind of personal like power or uh, or fame or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 part of it, so I could see how Mallory it might be thinking to herself, like I'm gonna sort of stick to my guns because I care about this cause mm-hmm. and. That's what's important. And I've been able to bring all of these different people to the table. I'm not going to get scared out of leadership, right? Um, While at the same time, she could also, in saying to herself, this movement means more to me than anything else, also look at it and say, huh, maybe by me being part of the leadership, I'm actually, I'm hurting the movement. Hmm. So so I don't know, like I'm not her, right? Yeah. Uh, if I were her, I think what I think I would have stepped down from from leadership. Um, but uh, but I can't but I can't speak for her. I wasn't in that room when those um, when those alleged conversations took part. So, Howard, do you want to touch this with the twenty foot pole or? Well, I mean, when I look at the Women's March and I look at the issue, I, I think of just contemporary mobilization more generally. So I, I kind of look at it, you know, not only at the lens of the controversy, but just the difficulty it is today to create a movement. You know, unlike yeah. the, the age of Martin Luther King, where there were churches and clear kind of oriented goals, we now have a society that has so many micro uh, subdivisions to it that it's really hard to get, uh, you know, a broad march on something that should be widespread. That, you know, women of of any faith, of uh, of any color, of any class, are, are facing a, a number of similar issues. I mean, certainly there are differences when you get look at those intersections, but it's very hard to mobilize people in in one in continuous space. And I just think of what you know, as Leslie was saying, like why do people show up to the march? And they show up not for necessarily the specifics, and and you see this in hashtag movements as well, that they're they're responding to the broader issue, and everybody comes there with a different uh, set of reasons, and and so I find that you know when I kind of look at the the women's march, and this year there were fewer people than the last few years, I just think of just the difficulty of trying to get people to to share a space and share a common goal. Hmm. Can I ask a question to uh, Leslie and, and Howard on this? Um, something that struck me too is what, what I was wondering is is you know I've heard the criticisms of, of intersectionality as sort of a in, in terms of a, of a political rhetoric. Um, are are we seeing that sort of here? And well, it, the criticism being such that um, it it can get away from fundamental issues and it's so focused on cleaving by by different sorts of, of intersections that ultimately it it's it pits into it pits groups against each other ultimately uh, you know, be, because of these uh, you know I I'm of this and this and this versus someone is of this and this and then in, in terms of in terms of identity or ideology or, or, or what have you I mean is this a is this a, an empirical case to be to be thinking about how that uh, how how an intersectional sort of uh, um, 
a political orientation ultimately in a way divides and conquers or, you know, in terms of thinking about mobilization for a greater good or? Well, certainly it creates complications. I, I think of the Toronto um, Pride March where divisions ended up emerging between Black Lives Matters and the organizers uh, of, of the march. And it led to a, a protest in the march that, that shut down the march. And, uh, you know, it was a matter of in, intersectionality. And I think it's important to kind of look at uh, intersections and the differences that occur within causes and movements. Uh, but certainly taken to its extreme, it becomes me first politics. And over the last five or 10 years, this is kind of the politics that we've been promoting, uh, not just yeah. on the left and in terms of movements, but the, the mainstream politics as well. Yeah, and in me, thinking specifically about the women's movement, right, I mean, and, and, and thinking about intersectionality, I mean, historically speaking, uh, you know, it, like the movement was not uh, a space, uh, a space where many people, where many women who, who weren't cisgender, who weren't heterosexual, right, who weren't white, and who weren't at least middle class felt like they had a space. And even if they did have a space, they were there merely for the optics. Like that's what they were valued for. See, we have diversity within our movement, but their voices were not valued. And part of me kind of feels like, you know, maybe instead of thinking about this as like negative and being like, oh, it's so fractured, look at this, there is no one voice, is maybe what we should be thinking about this is like like a movement or a newer movement in its infancy, which is allowing everyone to like sort of be seen and be like, oh, this is what it feels like to be seen. This is what it feels like to be heard, right? Mm -hmm. And once we get it established that like, okay, everyone you see, you all got to have your say, you all got to be seen. Now that we've established like a certain baseline level of equality, maybe now we can get to the table and actually start like hammering out what this agenda really looks like. Well, certainly I would agree with you, Leslie, that, you know, a successful movement is a movement that's able to have humility and that's able to kind of go through the stumbling blocks of figuring out what that common space is and and being inclusive. Because certainly this is a problem with a lot of movements that it excludes people at the the cost of the goals that it says that it's trying to pursue. Mm -hmm. But ain't I a woman, though, right? I mean, that's the question, right? Exactly. And now we turn to Richard Carpiano, a professor of public policy and sociology at the University of California, Riverside. Richard is a medical sociologist and public health policy scholar with a ton of work to his credit. He does work in a bunch of areas, including more recent work on under vaccination. Uh, he and Nicholas Fitz, uh, rather, uh, recently published Public Attitudes Towards Child Under Vaccination, a randomized experiment on evaluations, stigmatizing orientations, and support for public po- or support for policies in social science and medicine. It's a really good article. I enjoyed it. A great piece of medical sociology, and I look forward to talking about, about it. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, okay, let's start. Maybe you could start us off by, uh, you know, giving us uh, a sense of what the controversy is surrounding vaccination and anti-vaxxers. Who are they? What's going on? Anti-vaxxers, we could uh, is a uh, the the common parlance that gets used in a lot of different ways. But but 
empirically really represent uh, a, a rather small population, a small but yet very vocal minority of, of the mm -hmm. larger population uh, of concern of what we would we would call vaccine hesitant uh, uh, parents. Um, in, in terms of so vaccine hesitancy can capture anything from somebody having some sorts of, of concerns, maybe about one or more vaccines for their child. Um, they might uh, delay uh, have, having concerns of a child getting too many vaccines all at one time uh, versus when we talk about, uh, uh, you know, or, or even in general, it could just be someone who, who goes through the motions, gets their child vaccinated, but is, you know, generally, uh, you know, maybe not on board in terms of or has, has some significant sorts of questions in regards to uh, safety uh, or other uh, or other maybe sort of side effects that, that might emerge as a result of, of, of vaccinating their child. Uh, versus the uh, the anti-vaxxer who is uh, who is generally uh, you know would be someone a parent uh, who uh, whose child has uh, no vaccines or or at some point maybe started vaccinating their child and, and then stopped as a result of uh, uh, well not any number of different reasons but we can uh, attribute them to uh, where it, this is really still a, a, a rather emerging literature. Uh, but we know that uh, you know this, the influences of this um, get very heavily tied around networks, information that's found on the web, um, and then also uh, more uh, sort of broadly, uh, science that was uh, that's been debunked. Uh, that it was a, a major study uh, many years ago by uh, now a, a, a discredited uh, physician by the name of Andrew Wakefield, who uh, published a piece in the Lancet, so a rather, a rather prominent, uh, one of the most prominent medical journal, international medical journals, um, postulating a link between uh, a vaccine, the MMR vaccine, uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that uh, young children receive, and, uh, and autism. And that ultimately, mm -hmm. when investigated, was found to be uh, um, uh, fraudulent uh, in terms of, or in, and unethical in terms of, of how the, uh, the analysis was conducted. And uh, based on a very small sample of children, and ultimately um, uh, his authors uh, uh, decided to not stand behind it, and uh, the Lancet uh, ultimately decided to uh, to retract the article. Uh, yet, it, what's interesting is is that that myth is well, or that that finding caught fire and is and is still has persisted for a long time. Although um, it's now. Uh, this has really kind of caught fire, and and uh, so we had the historically, if we kind of try to track this sort of historically, we had uh, certain sort of prominent uh, um, uh, celebrities who were getting behind this and concerned about it. Jenny McCarthy being probably right. one, of the, one of the most prominent about this. Um, yet, um, so over time, this, uh, I mean, the whole vaccine hesitancy or even an anti-vaxxer activism is is not a new thing. That's that's always sort of existed. Uh, but to, to the extent to which we see it now and it's and, and the ways and uh, you know, media and, and even sort of just online, the Internet enables uh, sort of a more uh, vocal uh, sort of active uh, a resurgence uh, in a way is, is rather uh, is rather important. Um, and we it, while we might think of these as a, as a very small group of the of the vaccine hesitancy population. Um, the consequences of of their actions really are ra are rather significant. Um, in the sense well, yeah, there's been outbreaks, haven't there? 
Yeah. So um, in terms of outbreaks, um, and so you know, we, often we look at these. Uh, you, you can it, it starts to become a bit of a numbers game. You, if you look at sort of reports about states or or the nation in terms of how many children are vaccinated, the numbers look really quite good to maintain um, herd immunity, which would be um, the idea that if you vaccinate enough uh, people within a population, that they can provide a, a certain protection to those who can't be protected from it, either they're too young or they're immunocompromised, or people, some people even have legitimate allergies to uh, reactions to, uh, to certain vaccines. Um, but, uh, we, but to the extent to which these, uh, you know, so while these numbers look big and everything looks protected, we know, well, you know, really it's, it's, these are infectious diseases, they're communicable, and uh, so it's about who you see in your day-to-day. And fundamentally, this is a sociological problem in the sense that we have, uh, vaccine hesitancy clustering in particular communities and in within particular schools. And so as a result, uh, this really sets, uh, uh, sets the sort of groundwork or the potential for, the, for these types of outbreaks. Um, and con- uh, compounding that also are in many states we have uh, vaccination is, is not mandatory. Uh, that there are options to uh, to uh, exempt out of it as a result of some sort of philosophical or or, or, or religious type of exemption in, in certain states. Um, only three states actually make it a requirement for enrollment. Um, a lot of talk about California initiating it, but actually it's it's West Virginia and Mississippi were the leaders in this, which is I kind of laugh as a public health scholar because generally when you think of those two states, you don't think of them as public health leaders on, on many things. Uh, but in terms of taking action on that, um, you know that that had been uh, that that is something that that's been going on. Uh, but I digress. Um, so uh, with with the rise, we, we've also been seeing so not only just this sort of uh, rise in sentiment, rise in activism, but also sort of a rise in these. Uh, in, in these opting out uh, exemptions, um, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, is also it, it enables uh, um, to uh, enable some or, or sets at least the the potential for a lot of a lot of these vaccinations or a lot of these uh, uh, outbreaks to occur. Um, but you know, for I guess for the for the li- average listener who's like okay you know, you know public health uh, wonk here talking about you know something that's important to him and, and whatnot I mean this this what I find really fascinating about this whole issue is is more broadly as a sociologist is really how the anti-vaccine movement and even vaccine hesitancy in general um, and. Some of my work has been within the United States. I, I focus a, a significant amount of it in Canada too, and see some very some in, interesting similarities as well. Um, is is really how this applies to sort of more broader uh, sociological issues about uh, information uh, or misinformation or, or uh, and, and 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 even right, campaigns, right. the role of networks in circulating them, and even how some of these things get tied into broader political issues uh, regarding uh, populist politics and and the role of uh, a more sort of libertarian sort of streak uh, um, that you might see. And so really, this is um, we, I mean I could be talking with you about this, so you could make this about a, a, a right, right. an a podcast series. Um, so maybe I should stop there and let, let, let well, you guys jump in. You know what? It's actually the perfect setup for my next question, which is, so like, tell us about your study because it was involving public perceptions and public reactions, which is very important. Yeah. Well, you know, I, we, we look at these, well, there's so much attention that's paid to who's not vaccinating uh, because mm-hmm. you know, journalists cue in on that. And, you know, and, and obviously to, to many people that might seem sort of unusual, it's counterintuitive. You know, vaccinations are considered to be one of the greatest public health achievements. If you were to take Public Health 101, it would make a top 10 list of some one of the greatest uh, uh, accomplishments of public health. 
uh, sanitation yeah, yeah. and other things. Yeah. So, so it does yeah. seem rather counterintuitive. And so the stories will folk, definitely focus in on that. What's not a news story is the fact that most parents go and get their child vaccinated. And maybe there's a little bit of crying, but otherwise it's not really much of an event. And so when I was telling people that this is, I, I became fascinated sort of uh, uh, just when the California uh, outbreak had occurred, the Disneyland measles outbreak uh, occurred. Mm. And, um, and that's really how, how I started getting into this as, as an issue. And um, as I started getting into projects and I would talk with people about like, you know, what it is that I study and the current things I'm looking at, I would notice, you know, this. I would tell people before, and I study health disparities, you know, and people will tell me, tell me more about what that's all about sort of thing. Uh, but this was something that particularly uh, I, I noticed really hit a nerve with people. Um, you know, oh, those people are nuts. Those people are crazy. Oh, I can't believe that, mm-hmm. you know, that people would do, they better stay away from my child, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and so to me, it was it was just really fascinating to think about. So what, what is the regular, what, what is the average pub, public perception of this versus the studying always about what is an anti-vaxxer? think and react and how we might sort of, sort of counter that. And there's so much sociological literature about sort of public perceptions about mental illness and about stigma. And really a lot of those ideas really do translate to this, but now looking in this case at, at, at an infectious disease. Um, so Richard, can you give us a, 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 an overview of your, uh, of your study? What were you looking for? What were the questions? How'd you do it? Yeah, so uh, my study, uh, our study, uh, and I have to give a, a lot of credit to uh, my co-author uh, Nick Fitz, who is just a, a was a whiz with uh, MTurk and, and uh, his designs. He's uh, now pursuing his his uh, doctorate in uh, in psychology at Duke. Um, so, uh, having said that, um, so. It, this is really sort of out of a tradition of, uh, of, of vignette studies that had been done uh, with uh, in, in medical sociology and the sociology of mental health to try to measure sort of public attitudes uh, regarding uh, re- regarding illness and sort of the, just the sort of public uh, the social construction in, in essence of of, 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 of illness. And what, what we so what we tried to do here is we we created a, a number of different vignettes that we randomized uh, to present to uh, people. Uh, in this case, this was a uh, um, uh, a response on, on Amazon's MTurk uh, throughout the United States. Um, and they were presented with four different uh, vignettes, one, one of four different vignettes, uh, one of which mm-hmm. characterized a, uh, a discord, described a, a, a mother who uh, was completely, uh, was very concerned about vaccinations and in terms of their safety. And uh, was as a result has decided not that her, her child is not vaccinated at all. Uh, second mm-hmm. uh, one situation where uh, the mother has some concerns, but and so as a result has decided to delay some vaccinations. Um, a mm-hmm. third where um, the uh, mother is uh, thinks that vaccinations are important, uh, but life happens oh, as wow. a parent, and uh, and as a result the child's not up to date um, as a result of just sort of, sort of competing oh, wow. demands. And then a fourth condition where the mother thinks that vaccinations are really quite important and is, and as a result, it ensures that the child is, uh, that her child is, is up to date whenever, uh, when, whenever a vaccination is due. Uh, and so after being uh, um, exposed to one of, one of those four vignettes, uh, we gave the respondents a, a number of different measures that we adapted from a lot of the literature on, on stigma uh, towards mental illness in terms of trying to get uh, at people's uh, uh, attributions about uh, about the parent. So, to what degree um, they might blame the mother uh, if the child okay. got sick or others sick. Um, the degree to which they might be angry or have or have sympathy for the mother. Um, right. the, the degree to which um, they felt that there was sort of a a, a, a 
need for separation, that there was sort of a, a characterization or, or, or boundaries that are being drawn of sort of an us versus them sort of uh, about, about, mm. about mothers like the one that got described. Um, as well as uh, sort of a, assessments about their about the mother's sort of credibility in terms of thinking about uh, uh, information or, or advice that she might have to offer about parenting or about um, about health issues of the child, and then also just the perceived sort of dangerousness that the that the parent might have. Um, and then we also have some questions about the degree to which the, uh, the end of the respondent might uh, uh, want to be dis distance themselves or not, you know, sort of live in this either the same community or interact with either both the mother and, and as well as we had separate uh, questions for the child as well, um, as well as some uh, questions around discrimination too, that they um, uh, should be kept out of things or, or this mother should be uh, hired. You know, we even went to some sort of extreme sorts of examples about social exclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, what, what we found was uh, uh, very stark, which was actually uh, sort of surprising to me, is the, the, the degree to which this really did fall on a gradient in the sense that um, uh, respondents most strongly reacted to the kind of traditional anti-vaxxer sort of description of a parent with a child who's, who was not up to date on any, on any of them intentionally. Uh, and then next to that, next strongest would be then the delayer to the, um, and then a little bit more more nuanced, but uh, but but still some negativity towards the towards the mother who is just encountering just challenges and in, in making the doctor's appointments and, and getting and getting the child uh, the child up to date. So in addition to that, but on on top of that, uh, what we found was um, equally or in some cases stronger reactions towards the the mother's child, which was also interesting. To thinking about sort of a in this case, uh, a stigma by association, perhaps, but also in the case of, you know, it's a, a, the child's sort of, I guess, potential for carrying disease. Uh, we can think about this in sort of a, a, a almost like the out of like classic literature or the Bible, the idea of like sort of avoiding the uh, the, 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 the the person who could be the carrier, uh, you know, sort of uh, yeah. in, in that regard. Um, more broadly, though, um, in terms of a uh, in, in terms of thinking about policy and where to go with this in these, in, in these findings were that we found that these reactions were very strongly tied to the types of policies that, um, that um, these respondents would endorse or, or get behind. So we presented them with a, with a range of options um, that uh, span from rather benign things like that most people could probably get behind, such as you know more education or um, uh, is needed, more public education is needed, um, to things that were very uh, much you know very severe. Uh, well, to things that were sort of on the books, so things like uh, uh, banning a child from school, like what would occur in California, uh, or, or at that time period was on on the books for being voted on. Uh, so that's the other thing to put to put this a little bit in context. Are we were catching a bit of a, of a zeitgeist uh, in terms of the news cycle, um, but then also some more extreme sorts of policies that were getting promoted or or, or proposed or or later implemented even, such as in relation to um, uh, denying certain sorts of social benefits. Uh, um, if a, if a child to a parent or a household, if a child is not up to date, and ultimately what we were finding there is that the you know the more sympathetic that somebody was essentially the general pattern was the more sympathetic that that someone was towards the, towards a parent, the more they were towards these kind of more lighter or softer sorts of policies. Um, you know, public yeah. public reporting of school uh, coverage would be an, would be another example of that. Um, and then the more strongly that they reacted to the parent and to the child, the more likely they were to be moving towards um, these much more sort of heavier handed sorts of policies um, you know, that, 
would definitely, um, uh, from an anti-vaxxer standpoint, be viewed as very, you know, much more, you know, very heavily intrusionist, sort of, uh, you know, sometimes gets couched in rhetoric of, of, of anti-American or, you know, anti-freedom or, you know, mm -hmm. unlibertarian, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. So, so Richard, I really enjoyed the article. Thank you very much. Um, and and one of the things one of the things that got me thinking about was um, was whether or not um, whether or not you think uh, like stigma would have varied based on what vaccine or which vaccines you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, like I've been I think a lot about the HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and number one, I actually think that like all boys should have to take it. And um, I don't think girls should have to take it at all because we then have to go on and take toxic uh, oral contraceptives. Right. And, right. So we already have these things going on. So why not put the why not put the onus on boys since boys are the ones who 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 transmit mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Right. Um, so but we don't do that. So I was wondering whether or not you thought you would see different effects Right. In terms of like sort of like the um, the sort of size, uh, like the effect of like stigma actually being a thing. Number one, because we're talking about something that's associated with something that is very often stigmatized uh, in our society, uh, both sex and also sexually transmitted diseases. Right. Although the way in which HPV is framed is framed more as a sort of cancer um preventative vaccine right so i was wondering whether or not you th you'd see like some similar effects there and whether or not you think you might see gender effects there right yeah no that's such a great question um and the the, the short answer to that is i i would definitely think that we, we would see see effects about that um there is will you do the study <laughs> <laughs> any funders listening um <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um i mean definitely we for all the uh, all, all the, the the high uptake that we see for uh sort of the the, the standard or the the more established sort of child vaccinations you know it's it's a definitely a different story for the hpv vaccine um and um uh, you know and there is a lot uh, tied into this idea that uh, and and I, and I think a bit of a stigma around the idea that well you can get it through sexually transmitted uh, through, through sexual transmission and so therefore uh you know i'm giving this to uh to my daughter well now and now at least in some some localities, uh, uh, boys as boys as well, but giving it at a young age, and um, you know, so this idea that well, I mean, certainly in uh, so among some families, there was concern that, and this has now been uh, debunked quite nicely, I think, with with studies. But this sort of concern that well, if we give this to kids, kids are going to mistakenly think it's it's some license to go have sex, um, that they might think that they're sort of super protected and and whatnot, and we 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 know that. That definitely has, hasn't occurred. So that's a, that's a misconception. Um, but also, I, I think it hits on, I mean, ultimately, these are apparent, uh, you know, very heavily parent or parental decisions. And parents, uh, you know, it's to, to think about their, you know, the 12, 14 year old, uh, uh, you know, thinking about let's let's talk about sex or even now uh, the age has been moved down in certain uh, jurisdictions of when it gets to like 11. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, this, you know, my, my sweet little child, I have to think of them now as sort of this, this sexual being, um, you know, as, you know, it's certainly uh, discomforting for, for a parent. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's certainly going to undermine, uh, undermine the uptake of it as well. So I, I you know, make a long story short, I, I would not be surprised if the, if the findings would be were, were very different for that, um, uh, for, for that particular vaccination. 
Hey, Richard, I, I was really fascinated with your study, and I, I like that you used vignettes, and you're looking at social distance, and you're looking at how people relate to one another. But I do a lot of work with policymakers, and, and what I was curious about is, you know, there's a, a thing in policy where people say 1, 3, and 25, that uh, the, the intern reads the 25 report, uh, page report, uh, they make a three-pager that they send to their boss, who then makes a one-pager that sends it to the decision-maker. <laughs> and, and so I was wondering, like, in terms of policy, how, how do you see that one-pager, uh, or the, you know, the, the, what, what is the intervention that this is leading to that, that you think will make the most effective change here? Well, there's, uh, this is where it gets complicated in terms of thinking about uh, um, the, the whole, about this particular issue about, uh, about uh, under-vaccination and vaccine hesitancy in general, uh, in, in that, um, well, one, one, it's good in general to be thinking about sort of what, what would be public support behind, uh, behind different policies if, if they, uh, if support moves one way or another. And, and we have, we have extended this to looking at, uh, uh, in, within British Columbia, uh, in terms of public attitudes towards di towards different sorts of policies, um, not not in this sort of experimental situation, but just sort of looking just more more broadly at sort of what people might might be supporting and, and whatnot. But what I try to bring up in the uh, in the discussion section of the, of the paper, and, and this is where things get get much more sort of challenging and more controversial. To, I guess you could say to, to be thinking about is. Uh, you know, as sociologists, you know, we 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 generally think of stigmas as as, as quite a bad thing, usually, uh, in terms of being applied to a particular group and they're being outcast and, and whatnot. Uh, within public health ethics, um, there's been a little bit more of a of a revision of of this issue, um, in the sense that um, you know, uh, one person particularly comes to mind would would be the work of, of Ronald Bear, who is an HIV ethicist. Uh, obviously, in that case, stigma would, would, would be terrible, uh, you know, and was a terrible approach in terms of, of thinking about different types of interventions uh, for that particular disease. But at the same time, sort of brings up, which is uh, widely recognized within public health, you know, that stigmatization of cigarette smoking worked quite well. Uh, huh. And so does that mean, you know, to what degree is yeah. stigma as sort of an ethical is there an ethical basis of using stigma as in, as in, as a public policy a public policy lever, uh, essentially? Um, in this case, uh, you know, so we, we kind of try to weigh those issues and, and try to thinking about them. You know, the, the potential to be pushing people sort of underground in this case and not getting, uh, um, uh, not converting. If the goal is to try to get as high a po as possible uh, uh, coverage, uh, you know, would that really be a, a, the, the would that be the most effective sort of, sort of solution to be bringing up, you know, bring campaigns of, that, that really have sort of a, a bit more of a, I vaccinated my child, why haven't you? And, uh, you know, and, and, and really sort of putting the onus on uh, and turning it around towards the, towards the anti-vaxxers and, and shining a lens on that versus the, you know, the other sorts of options that might be what, what gets discussed in this still emerging literature uh, and, and, and debate and discussion around things such as, well, just focus on these more, Mild, you know, more less of sort of severe hesitant parents who are sometimes referred to as sort of the fence sitters. Convert those, and you know, and that should be enough to be able to maintain what we need. Um, and so, so there's really there's not a there's not a straightforward with with this paper uh, policy uh, prescription with it. Um, it's it's more, but but what we were trying to do with it was really trying to capture this, um, trying to bring sort of the other side to it of. Uh, Whereas so much is always focused on again this these the, the anti-vaxxer the vaccine or the vaccine hesitant population itself is 
what exactly are the attitudes towards these people where it's sort of that, that might take it for granted that, you know, I do this for my kid or, or that, or that other, or that parents do this for, for their children and, 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 and are generally, we know from public surveys that generally the vast majority of the public is, is on board with the, with the, with the utility of, of, of vaccination. And so kind of where, where does this attitudinal sort of fault line sort of stand was really sort of where, where we were, uh, where we were going with this paper. No, that, yeah, that, that was really the cool part of it. You know, it made me think of all kinds of ideas. On, on the one hand, it made me think of the Chinese saying of uh, kill the chicken to scare the, the monkey. Or, or in, a, in other words, you know, you, there's evidence that you find that basically people are okay with stigmatizing the people who are refusing. There, therefore, you might be able to have some impact on, on harsher policies or, or using stigmatization to, to scare away the people who are kind of thinking about it but aren't committed. Uh, but then on the other hand, I thought to myself of when I was a, a kid in the in the 80s uh, and a teenager and those commercials of um, with the eggs and here here's your brain and then they crack it and fry it on the fry yeah. pan and here's your eggs on drugs. And, yeah. and uh, you know, we just legalized cannabis in Canada. Uh, so that didn't really work on, on the soft drugs. So, you know, so this is the kind of stuff I began thinking about and, and where, where I was kind of pushing you to, to, to see where you might be thinking about in, in terms of how this would be used. Yeah, no, that's it's that's that's a great point. Um, it's it's it really is really amazing how f such a small group can be so vocal and and really what we we are seeing on the on the policy uh, side of it is how impactful they really can be in uh, in, in undermining uh, efforts to, uh, to you know to maintain maintain the public's health um, in terms of even just some fairly fairly basic uh, uh, sorts of, of, of measures. Such as say public reporting, so that parents are aware of you know within their school how how their school kind of fares or different schools, um, how that gets challenged um, or uh, or different you know in Texas we know that there's certain candidates that you know they'll get behind and and they'll support uh, and so this is it it really uh, um, it's I think and sadly I mean I really think we are sort of uh, still only at a, the relative tip of the iceberg. Um, and I, I, I hate to say it, but I think things are going to get worse going along. I'm, I'm, I'm not the only only person saying that. Um, the support, I mean, we can, you can see it from a social movements lens, too. I mean, I always say that there's a great dissertation to be written here, too, on, on, in, in that regard. I mean, we, so much of these, the public media stories are always about... Uh, um, this mom here, and, you know, and these are often are mothers who are, who are making sort of appearances, and we and we know that mothers tend to make the, the majority of the health decisions for a child. Um, but uh, but in terms of the actual sort of organized collective grassroots sorts of efforts, uh, you know, it, it really is quite amazing uh, the, the the pull that they that they can have. Uh, the the uh, and even to the extent to which they get media coverage gives a, a public the public conception that they are uh, much more numerous in size than what they are. So um, challenging, you know, coming back and fighting that, particularly in, in you know the internet age where people have you know the, the PhD in Google or you know they can access a, 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 a scholar or a, or a clinician online and Twitter and try to engage them and uh, or or even sponsor panels. I've, I've, I fell into this uh, when we were I was talking about this with a number of, of, of vaccination researchers and, and clinicians. So, getting invitations to uh, panels that were essentially stacked with anti-vaxxers and sort of as a tactic of sort of legitimating sort of their cause because they're on the same sort of panel as, as, you know, as a, a, I used to myself a legit scientist. Um, mm -hmm. 
uh, yeah, so the, all these sorts of, of different ways that uh, that they come about, uh, you know, and, and, and tactics and tactics that they that they employ, um, that really present some different challenges, and ultimately have in some countries have resulted in, uh, you know, like Australia, you know, taking some rather strong measures, such as their no uh, no jab, no pay policy, where uh, denying different sorts of uh, of tax. Uh, uh, Benefits to families if their if their child's not up to date, for instance, um, and and seeing that, uh, and and, uh, and now or or in the other case, uh, uh, retrenchment, I guess you could say, in terms of, of vaccination policy in in Italy, and we're now we're seeing uh, which is now in, in, along with a lot of Europe in the, you know in, in a wave of a major measles epidemic. You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. A special thank you to Richard Carpiano from UC Riverside. We discussed his article with Nicholas Fitz, Public Attitudes Towards Child Under Vaccination, a randomized experiment on evaluations, stigmatizing orientations, and support for policies in the journal Social Science and Medicine. Also, a thank you to Howard Ramos of Dalhousie University for filling out on guest duty. It was wonderful to have you. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Marino. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Howard Ramos, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.